You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want to inspire you to be in your financial front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, how to reach your goals, and by having an annual checkup. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. We know because we listen to you that we have a lot of entrepreneurs and wannabe entrepreneurs listening to the show. And whether you consider yourself one or not, the ability to market yourself, to create a strong brand, whether you're doing it for personal or professional reasons, that is a skill that we should all have. And Tina Wells, who is an expert on that, is here to coach us. Tina is the CEO and founder of Buzz Marketing. It is an agency that creates marketing strategies for clients within the beauty, entertainment, fashion, financial, and lifestyle sectors. And she is also the author of the Youth Marketing Handbook, Chasing Youth Culture and Getting It Right, and the best-selling tween series, Mackenzie Blue. That is a big resume, Tina. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, we're really, really happy to have you. You started your first company when you were 16 years old. I did. Um, And I like to say that I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I did not know that I would start a company. I really wanted to be a fashion editor. And, you know, when I was 15, I took a job writing for a newspaper for girls. And that's what led me into entrepreneurship. So by no means did I, you know, have a big business plan at 16 and and know that this is what I would be doing with my life. So how did the company come about? How did you get for, how did you get from writing for a newspaper to starting starting an actual marketing company. So my job at this newspaper called The New Girl Times was writing product reviews. And once I'd review a product, I would send it back to the publicist who sent me the item. And and inevitably, they would say, if I, if I send you more product, will you keep telling me what you think? I like your opinion. And so I thought that I, that was the aha moment, right? I get free products and I get to give my opinion. And then I was getting so much stuff that I had to enlist some friends to help. And I would give everyone a scorecard. I would average out our scores and then I'd write up a little report. And, you know, the the big aha moment actually came from a quote unquote client. I use air quotes um, because they didn't pay money, but she was my client. And she gave me a call one day and said, I want to tell you something really important I just paid $25,000 for market research, and what you and your friends did was 10 times better. You know, you have a business, go figure it out. And so by this point, I was a freshman taking my intro business class with the head of the department. I went to see her during office hours, and she said, take an independent study with me. We're going to make it a business. And that was really, you know, I worked with this professor hand-in-hand on a plan and and really honed in on, on what the actual business was going to be. Listening to you reminds me of my daughter um, because she's one of those kids that we have said through the years, we should invest in it when she thinks it's hot. Mm-hmm. Like she has an eye for that sort of thing. Clearly you do too. So how did that come about? How did you understand that your opinion was so valuable? I think it was something that um, I started to learn over time where I would 
pay attention to certain things or certain trends and I would say, why, you know, this person's going to be really hot one day or this thing is going to pop off. And I think it just comes back to, I don't know, how I see things, you know, and, and like one of my favorite places to do quote unquote market research is an airport because you have so many people and so many different demographics to look at. And, you know, when you when you walk on a plane and you see a mom and the daughter, you know, and maybe grandma wearing Uggs or Toms, right? You're like, okay, this is becoming a thing. But I, but I think I've always had a knack for cutting through the noise and, and understanding, you know, is this just something that's here for a minute or is this a more permanent trend? And that's what I really, you know, that's the one skill I think I try to hone over the years. And I think sometimes as entrepreneurs, we think that we have to be generalist. And I really focused um, initially in my career on the youth market. And then as they grew up, uh, I became more focused on millennials. And, and I've really been in that lane for over 20 years. And so I think it's it's more about like mastering a skill and saying, I'm going to know as much as I can about this specific thing. Well, and millennials are such a such an enormous segment of the population that if you want to stick with them for the rest of your career, there is certainly plenty to do. It's true. And they're fascinating. I think being there in the beginning and watching the evolution and, you know, now, although Gen Z is really fascinating to me as well. And so um, I like looking at emerging demographics and what motivates them and what their path to purchase is and and how, you know, what what interests them just changes the products that they want to consume. So tell me about female millennials. One of the interesting things about this show is that we know we've done our own market research and we know we've got a ton of millennials listening, but we've also got an equal number of Xers and boomers. So we we actually skew very, very wide. But from your perspective, what is it that that categorizes a female millennial? Uh, for me, the one word that comes to mind when I think of a female millennial is resilient. Um, if you think about where she was in life when she was graduating from college, she was kind of inheriting the worst economic climate, you know, that we'd seen in decades and really had to figure out how to make her way. You know, the the job that she was promised didn't exist. And, and we saw so many women and female founders creating new companies, creating opportunities and, and you know, maybe working two part-time jobs as they didn't have a full-time job. And we saw the emergence of what we call the gig economy, you know, whether you're driving for Uber or you're a task rabbit. And so I look at her and think, okay, she really, you know, 10 years later, had to figure it out really quickly. Um, I also look at them as figuring out how to do a lot more with less, you know. And you see these ingen- ingenious companies like Rent the Runway, right? Yep. I can't afford to buy the dress. I'm going to rent the dress. Um, I can't. And afford- we had Jen Hyman on the show. Uh, a, a brilliant concept. Amazing. Right? Or, or you see a company like Glossier, which is, hey, instead of buying all of these products, buy these hero products that will do four or five things for you, you know. And so I think um, you look at the the real, you know not even launch, but the real acceptance and adoption of of sustainable fashion, right? So we're going to own less and we're going to have those items be what's now called like hero products, right? Or you see someone like Misha Nunu who launched the Easy 8, you know, a collection where you can make 22 different outfits. So um, I, I feel like they were real innovators and really said, okay, we might have a little bit less than than the previous generations, but we're going to figure out how to do a lot more with it. We're going to be smart about money. We're going to talk about it. Uh, we're going to care about it. We're going to invest. We still want our great vacation, so maybe we'll delay buying a home. We're still interested. And when we do buy, it won't, you know, we don't need a McMansion. You know, maybe we'll have a car or we can just have a zip car, right? So they really p- were picking and choosing what was very important for them. Um, and at the same point in time, you know, 
having to make really tough decisions in, in a not so great economy for them. A uh, survey landed in my inbox just this morning about the fact, and and this is this is from. Who is this from? It's from Bankrate. A survey from Bankrate landed in my inbox just this morning talking about the fact that millennials really are more willing to talk about salary. So millennials more than doubled the number of baby boomers who are actually willing to have these conversations. And yet I know that the financial industry is still wondering how do we reach them, right? When we look at the trends coming forward, particularly about millennial women and the huge transfer of wealth that's coming down the pike and the fact that we are starting to make some traction in younger people and younger women with salary parity. Women have got a lot of power, a lot of financial power and more in the years to come. And financial institutions are struggling to reach them. How do you advise your clients? So one of the things I I, I end up spending a lot of my time in really big companies, both with big companies and startups, and they're they're so different. And I enjoy both of those experiences just because of how unique they are. And inevitably, as you've spoken to with big companies, it's like these big, massive ships that need to kind of turn right and and make it's really difficult. And then you have these smaller, more nimble companies who can identify a problem, identify a solution and be off to the races. And so. I think what you're actually seeing is the solutions are coming from these smarter startups who at some point are going to be acquired by these bigger companies to help change the culture. But it really is, you know, about a culture shift that needs to happen. And when you think about the fact that I think for the first time in history, there are five different consumer demographics that are existing in an office together, right? So you still have some silent generation. You've got boomers, Gen X, millennials. And now Gen Z all trying to work together. You know, it just creates this interesting environment of saying, okay, you know, that the power is still at the top of people who are who are one or two generations removed from the women we're talking about. And so I often think that um, there comes a moment, right, where the rubber hits the road and these companies say, millennials, we can no longer kick the can on it. Right. For, For so long, it was millennials are the customer of the future for many big businesses. And then it became quite clear that millennials were the customer of now. And many of them were not prepared for for what that meant. And I think that, you know, the financial services and finance industry is still one where they're still trying to kind of kick the can a little bit. Because when you think wealth, you think, okay, it's kind of removed. As you said, it's here right now. And so, you know, I think that in some instances, it might have to come from the outside to come in and, and help create a new culture. Because when you're running and managing that big business, there's so much time and attention that goes into managing what you have mm-hmm. right now, you know, that to take the focus off of that to, to then think about what has to happen tomorrow, I think is um, it's complicated and it's tough. I think they know that they need to make a transition. They know it has to happen. But right now they've got to manage the thing that's right in front of them. So I think you'll see, you know, there are companies like Stash Wealth and, you know, a lot of interesting startups in the space that are doing really, really cool things and talking to women, young millennial women, the way that they want to be, you know, talked to and engaged with. And I think that you, you'll you probably see more of those acquisitions. So if you are a woman who either has started a business or wants to start a business, how do we talk to millennial women these days? I mean, how what's the best way to reach people? 
Well, I think the first thing is understanding that as a generation, right, that they are entrepreneurs. You know, they want to be entrepreneurs. They're entrepreneurial in their thinking. And even if they have a full-time job, they've got some sort of side hustle. So I think it's first understanding that they've looked at their parents, looked at their moms, you know, lose a lot of money in the market. And they're saying, okay, I'm going to have my job and my safe job. And I'm also going to have this other thing that's creating wealth for me. And so um, I think the first thing is like realize that they are financially fluent and want to have these conversations and that there are also really unique vehicles like the Create and Cultivates and Girl Bosses of the world that are bringing this language to them in a way that's easy for them to digest, right? So when you're reading a Refinery29 piece, it's like, you know, I, I my favorite series they do is, is about how women in all different um you know, I would say economic situations spend their money. The money diaries. The money diaries. And we had yeah. Lindsay Stanberry, who just wrote the book on money diaries and edits that series. We had her on the show a couple of months ago. It's like my favorite thing to read. And I don't know if it's just like, I, I just love to consume it and to understand, you know, how are they making decisions? And, and so I think that we're open to talking about it more. You know, we're, we're very open to saying this is what's going on with money. Um, and to your point earlier, they're open to talking about it in general and then open to saying, I need more of it. This is what I think I deserve. And and But we're also coaching women a lot more right now. You know, there's tons of data and research in places like Levo that are saying, here's how you have the conversation about money. So it's something that I think younger women are being, are being coached to do. I want to go back to that in just a second, coaching, but also hear a little bit more about what's going on in your life specifically. But before we do that, um, let me just remind everybody that Her Money is sponsored by Fidelity Investments. We are working together to encourage all women to be in the front seat when it comes to our financial health. And that's because women are already in the front seat when it comes to so many aspects of our lives, managing our careers and our families and more. And yet when it comes to making those important decisions about money, too many of us are just not quite there yet. One thing is clear, when it comes to investing, you always want to know what you own, know what you owe, what your goals are, and have an annual financial checkup. And you can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are happily talking with Tina Wells, founder and CEO of Buzz Marketing Group. It does seem like you have an incredibly full plate. You also run a program at Wharton. You sit on a number of boards. What's your priority these days? Uh, I, I would say my priority is the work I'm doing through one of my new ventures. It's called Elevation Tribe. And it's content, community, and experience that's really focused on women of color who want to launch, grow, and lead companies. And so, you know, I, I've built my business as an entrepreneur for 22 years and understand, you know, the, the benefits of entrepreneurship. And I really want to help the next generation of women, you know, become entrepreneurs or side hustlers or whatever they want to do to make money. And so, uh, you know, I love the, the course I get to teach at Wharton every summer. And, you know, I get to work with 160 students and teach them how to start businesses. And so I really want to make that as, as big as I can and help as many women as I can, you know, launch, grow and, and lead companies. Give us a three-minute crash course. If you are a wantrepreneur, which is a term that I have never heard before, <laughs> but I really love and I'm going to borrow yes. a lot, how do you get started? 
So one of the things uh, I do with my students the very first week is um, it's kind of like a feasibility tool. And Elevation is actually a magazine, and, and the tool is actually included in the first issue of our magazine. And there's a series of questions that you need to ask yourself to really understand if the idea is viable. And it goes through every piece of a business, right? So it starts off with like, you know, let's talk about what the idea is. And then one of the things I say to my students is, can you name your first five customers, you know, and, and like exclude friends and family? How clear are you that you're solving a problem and that that there's actually a market for it? And then from there, we start to talk about, you know, how are you going to operate the business? You know, how are you going to market the business? And, and there's a really important term that we talk about, I think that Wharton talks about, um, TAM or the total addressable market, right? And so we hear a lot about that. What does that really mean? It's understanding or we hear another term, product market fit. And to me, that's the key to every business is understanding, you know, have you properly identified the target, the customer segment, and do you know that they need or want this particular product? And normally when we look at businesses that don't work, there tends to be something that's off, right, about your target market. And then at Wharton, we talk about the target market and then the total market. So if you look at a company like Away, you know, their target market might be millennials who travel, who want this type of, of suitcase. But the total market is really anyone who needs a suitcase to travel, right? And so you look at the ability to both target a segment and then also how do you scale and grow? Because if you are going to become, you know, a big venture, you want to build a billion-dollar business, it's around the ability to scale and that, you know, there are many companies and small businesses that are never going to become billion dollar companies that do support many, many people. And, and the majority of people will work for small businesses. But I think the key to both a large business and a small business is, is really understanding what's your total market and what's your ta- your target market and how do you plan to to even get to the first customer? Your focus on women of color is is clearly intentional. What struggles have you faced along the way as a black woman? So I often say that, um, you know, I was very fortunate to start a company at 16, you know, uh, raised in a middle class family in suburban New Jersey. Uh, I'm the oldest of six children. And so, uh, you know, I, my company was kind of like my side hustle to get all the new stuff I wanted because, you know, with six kids in private school, you got stuff on your birthday, Christmas, you know, special times of the year. But it wasn't like I mean, I still tell a story of how my mom, I, my aunt bought me L.A. gears. I mean, you have to be as old as I am, 38, to understand how amazing L.A. gears were back then. And they didn't fit. And my mom was like just supposed to exchange them. And she came back with like generic sneakers and shoes for church. And I was like gutted. Right. And so, (laughs) you know, getting this business was like, I have a side hustle that's really working. And so, you know, when I started in the space, first of all, millennials weren't even a thing, right? Youth marketing was just becoming a thing. I was in a really unique position to have the information that people needed. And so I would often walk into the rooms as the person who could solve the problem. And I think having that information just meant a lot of the usual problems weren't problems for me. Um, I also didn't, you know, finish college and then try to build a business. I already had six years into a business. And so I, I, what I am trying to address in Elevation are the challenges I think many women face, which is building a network. You know, I started building my network very young and I think access to capital. Again, a unique situation when you start a business that is like a home business when you're borrowing your parents' internet. I mean, it, trust me, I was not the favorite sibling when I was like blocking the AOL connection, right? Back when you could only be on the internet or the phone, right? right? So we had our own phone line, but I would kind of say, I have to make business calls. And I took over my parents' office. And then I was an undergraduate getting advice from 
the head of the business department. And so all of these things that I think as we get older would almost like cripple the business were able to help me. And so where I look at, you know, what were the struggles? I think that I was so young when I started, I didn't understand that I could have had other people's money invested into the company to do more and to grow quicker. So I think it was just that I lacked that knowledge. And then, you know, as I started to build the brand and the brand got a lot of press and then business would generate. But I think it was just that, you know, the challenge of what I didn't know, you know, and and I think that's the biggest challenge for women of color. It's it's what we don't know. It's access to capital and it's access to the right network. And so, you know, I've been very fortunate to create the right network and, and to land in the right places where my network was expanding. But I didn't understand as a teenager that someone else's money could have helped grow the business. I, I know very few teenagers who would <laughs> understand that above and beyond, hey, dad, can you give me some money to help start this business? Or, hey, mom, can you give me some money to help start this business? But I will tell you, my students who come into Penn and they're rising high school seniors, I think that, you know, the concept of entrepreneurship is something that's so ingrained that they're watching how, you know, TV shows like Shark Tank, right? Like there's a lot of consumer education around entrepreneurship and, and how you can launch a business now that just didn't exist. And so, you know, I think I, I, you know, I, if I had had access to that, it might have been different or the business might have grown in a different way. And, I, and instead, I feel like I really grew up with the business. And so I think the challenges that that most people face, the you know, for me, because I had this information that was really important to the success of a business or a campaign, it put me in a, in a different category. I want to ask one more question about branding because I promised that at the top of the show. You evaluate what makes brands strong, what makes them resonant. For somebody who wants to um, increase the strength of either their personal or professional brand, what do they need to do? Be disciplined. You know, I think that today we focus on eyeballs and getting in front of as many people as possible. And and I can't tell you, my big corporate clients who are spending, you know, $60, $70 million a quarter on advertising, they focus on the need to be disciplined in their messages and to make sure that there are less messages in the market. And, you know, as a smaller business, we have to be even more focused on are we saying the right thing going back to the total and target market? Are we saying exactly the right thing to the right target? And and I think social media, while it's created incredible opportunities and I think really has democratized business and allowed people to start business from, you know, a, a, a you know Instagram handle, I think it also has created so many opportunities to put a bunch of distorted messages out there about what you're doing. And so, you know, I, I say a lot of times to my girlfriends, if you want to be taken seriously as a corporate executive, maybe don't post all these vocation, you know, bikini photos. Or if you want to be seen more as a style fashion person, post those photos. But if your your goal is to be taken very seriously in this corporate way and you want to have this kind of conversation, you know, you have to curate around, you know, if your Instagram wants to speak to your family and, and you're a family, you know, you're blogging about your family and making recipes, then, then that's what you show. You know, that those are the behind the scenes. Or if you want to talk about business, that's what you do. And I, I think for me, you know, my family is obviously a really big part of what I do. Um, I travel quite a bit. And so my Instagram feed is these days, it's, I would say, a third business content for women. So whether it's some advice from TinaWells.com or Elevation Tribe, um, probably a third about my family. Uh, and the other third would be about my travel. And, you know, that's 
what's important to me. Instagram I, has not become a sales channel for me. I have some friends where Instagram is an incredible sales channel for them. And so I think you have to start off and say, like, what's my intention? What do I want to do with this? What's the intended outcome? And then build the communication or your personal brand around that outcome. Tina Wells, you are fantastic. I hope that you'll come back. I would love to come back. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. And we will be right back with Kelly in your mailbag. And Kelly Hultgren has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kel. Hi, Jean. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I can't believe we're already in, gosh, almost close to the end of November. What are your Thanksgiving plans? We are doing Thanksgiving at home this year. Nice. Um, yeah, we are having my mother and stepdad, Elliot's former wife and her husband and Sam and Shelby, my son and daughter-in-law. And um, I'm not sure how many of my brothers and their kids are showing up yet. They have yet to commit. They're threatening to go to Ohio. Well, that sounds like a big turkey that you'll need. Oh, we always need a big turkey because we need lots of leftovers. I've never roasted a turkey myself. Uh, you can come and I can show you. Can it's roast. not that it's not that bad. Well, it's it's a little daunting the first time you do it because it's just such a big bird. Mm-hmm. But it's like roasting a chicken, just longer. Have you ever roasted a chicken? <laughs> <laughs> I have. Like if assisting my mom growing up counts, but by myself from start to finish. I've never roasted a chicken. No. Oh. I know. I need to, but now I have a kitchen. I can do this. I will do it, and I will report back on my experience. Okay. And you and Thanksgiving? I'm going to Connecticut with my boyfriend and his family. Very nice. We have a beautiful house and a bigger family and a bunch of family friends, and it sounds like a week full of great food and people, and I'm very excited about it. Excellent. All right. What do we have? Questions. We'll do first one from Gretchen. She writes, I'm 71 years old, and a year ago, my husband and I set up a trust. The only thing in it is our home because the lawyer, who was in his 80s, said retirement accounts and bank accounts would pass to the surviving spouse. But we travel a lot and would want money to pass to our children without probate should we die within a short time of one another. We have about 700000 in our retirement accounts. Shouldn't all of this be in the trust? Thanks. Love the podcast. No, it shouldn't be in the trust because that would probably just complicate things. Putting it into a trust right now would complicate things. I am not an estate planning attorney, and I just want to couch this advice with that. But one thing you may want to look at is a revocable trust, which is sometimes called a living trust, where that at your death dictates what happens to your assets. So they wouldn't have to be in the trust yet, I believe. I think you could stipulate that they would go into the trust. Um, That said, I am, again, not a lawyer, but I would say I recently met with an estate planning attorney for the first time in a few years. And What surprised me most was how things had changed. So guidelines about passing assets onto your kids. I had a trust set up that would pass assets onto my kids at 25, 30, and 35 if something happened to me because the thinking was always you don't want to give them all the money at once because you want to make sure that they grow up along the way and don't completely blow it. 
Well, the thinking on those age-related payouts has changed, and now estate planning attorneys are recommending using a trust and a, and a trustee who you value their opinion to dictate when those assets might go to your children. Same thing on a revocable trust. I was always told that they were both expensive and unnecessary for a lot of people. This estate planning attorney has me thinking about whether I want one for me. And so I would say, go see another lawyer. That's my answer That's to this answer. question. All right, good luck, Gretchen. Let us know what happens. Now we'll do one from Anne. I have a friend that chose some sort of life insurance slash college savings plan for their child instead of a traditional 529. What I was told was that the money could be used as life insurance or eventually for college. I haven't heard of this before. What are your thoughts on this type of plan specifically and its pros and cons in comparison to more traditional college savings? My thoughts on these multi-use things are generally that they are more expensive than things that are for the specific purpose for which you need them. I think if you need life insurance, you should purchase life insurance. And if you need to save for college, you should save for college. And mixing the two doesn't often make a lot of sense. The other thing that I wonder about here is whose life is insured. Is that clear? Mm -mm. It's not, right? It says insurance slash college savings plan for their child. So if they're insuring the life of a child, that is generally not recommended. And that's because insurance is, if you think about the purpose of it, to replace the income for the dependents. So if I'm a parent, I need insurance on me because if I'm unable to work, if something happens to me, then my kids, my beneficiaries need that income in order to survive. A child, particularly a child who's not even in college yet, doesn't have an income. Mm -hmm. So there's really nothing there that you need to or want to insure. I get a little angry at people who do a hard sales pitch for insurance on kids to pay for things like funeral expenses. Mm -hmm. Just save some money for funeral expenses if that's something that you're even thinking mm -hmm. about. I know it's I just that. it's just awful. <laughs> I hate that so much. Um, it's a waste of money. Put your money into college savings and call it a day. We were recently chatting with someone who has both the hybrid life insurance plan and a 529. And she remember she was going back and forth on the return she was seeing on one versus the other. So maybe that's an option. I would have to see this specific policy yeah. to uh, to understand exactly where the money is going. Mm -hmm. But life insurance is... Um, I mean, term insurance is often a pretty inexpensive way to get the coverage that you need. My bet is that this is not term insurance. This is a whole life policy or some sort of permanent policy with a lot of fees baked in, and investing for college does not have to be that expensive. Okay, and we'll do one more from Bridget. I'm thinking about transferring a credit balance to a 0% 15-month credit card. I have about a $10,000 balance. I will be paying $500 a month on that card. What do you recommend I do at the end of 15 months? I know I will not have the full balance paid off, and the interest rate will be higher than what I have on my original card. Should I transfer the balance back to the lower rate? This question involves some math. And one thing you may want to do 
is only transfer the amount that you know that you'll be able to pay off. The issue with that is that the $4,000 that remains on your original card will continue to accrue interest. So what you have to compare is the cost of that interest versus the cost of the additional interest that you'll earn because the rate on the new card will be higher. It'll reset. And just to throw a monkey wrench into the equation, my bet is there's a 3% balance transfer fee. Mm. Um, Now, she said 15 months? Yes. 15 months. Mm -hmm. That sounds to me like the Chase Sapphire card. That's the only one I know that has that 15-month period. And Mm -hmm. if it is, that's also the only card that I know that doesn't have a balance transfer fee. So she may have been smart enough to find that card. But... If it does have a balance transfer fee, you got to throw that into the equation, figure out how much money you'd save by not transferring the whole balance, and pull out some pencil and paper and just do the math. Cool. Sounds good. Thank you, Jean, and thank you, everyone, for your questions. Thanks, everybody. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment. We talk a lot about credit on this show, a lot about credit scores on this show. And my number one tip to help raise your score is to pay your bills on time every single month. But now it looks like those of us who transact frequently and don't overdraw are likely to see their scores rise, too. Fair Isaac Corporation, the creator of the FICO credit score, is introducing a new scoring system called the Ultra FICO in 2019. This new system will look at how consumers manage cash in their bank accounts and is designed to increase the number of approvals for people applying for credit cards and loans and all sorts of other financial instruments. By looking at your history of transactions, lenders will get an idea of how likely you are to repay pay. Now, this does not mean you want to slack on paying your bills on time. Payment history will still factor into your score, but now a healthy checking or savings account can also help you get one step closer to approval. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Tina Wells for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week. We'll be back with Elian Beck, founder of a cool new startup called RoomZoom. Zoom.